Welcome to the Gateway Church Podcast. We're so glad you're here. We pray God speaks to you through this message and through His Word today. For more information about our church, please visit us at gatewaylife.com. Now let's tune in to this week's message. Hey, I'm Rabbi Troy Wallace. I'm a member here at Gateway, and uh, I'm going to be sharing with you this morning. This is my church. I usually sit over there every week. My kids are in the program week in and week out. So I just want to say thanks for having me this morning, letting me speak into your lives a little bit. You know, uh, anybody make some New Year's resolutions? Anybody? Nobody did. Okay, a couple. All right, I see hand in the back. That's wonderful. You know, how about how, any of you here because of a New Year's revolu- resolution? You're starting out the year, you made a recommitment to church. We're glad that if that's you. Maybe you're watching online or you're going to watch this recorded later. We're just glad that you're joining us. You know, I found myself that I'm sort of bad at New Year's resolutions. Anybody with me on that? Like I start out real strong, January, you know, I'm in the gym, I'm taking up the machine that all the normal people there are usually having every week. And I get to like May or June and and I kind of, so the last five years I figured that out. And then this year I decided I was gonna make a New Year's resolution that I knew I could keep. You ready for it? My New Year's resolution for 2022 is to make no New Year's resolution. Anybody resonate with me on that? (laughs) You know, and I was really tempted last week. I just want you to know, I was really tempted at the end of 2020 to make a resolution for 2022 for every sermon that I preached to do it less than 90 minutes. And I was like, well, I'm going to break that the first weekend of the year. So So I went ahead and gave up. uh, And... uh, This morning, you're going to see maybe why I don't know if I can do this in 90 minutes. I want to answer this question with our time together. Ready? Why does loving Israel and the Jewish people matter? You see why I'm nervous that I can do this in less than 90 minutes? I promise that I will, though. I made that commitment. Uh, And I want you to turn with me in your Bible. And the reason we always start with, hey, turn with me in your Bible or look at the scriptures on the screen, we don't want you to take our word for it. Exodus 19, and we'll land in Romans 11. It's going to take us a little while to get to Romans 11, but we will land there. And uh, I, I just want to say that we think loving Israel and the Jewish people matters to everyone. And, and it's important for us as followers of Jesus to understand why this matters. Now, you, you might be someone who's like, yes, I've been waiting for them to talk about Israel and the Jewish people. You might be the person that's like, wait a second, I thought the Jewish people in Israel don't really matter anymore. Or you maybe just never heard anybody talk about it. You haven't taken any time to think about it. Well, I hope wherever you are on that spectrum, I mean, you, maybe you're in a totally different category. We just want to ask of you to open your hearts today and see what the Lord says as we go through scriptures. You know, we're going to read some scriptures and then we're going to make some personal applications, but, but, but I want to give you an equation to start. The idea of Israel or Jerusalem or Zion, it's not a small issue in the scriptures. In fact, if you enter Israel, Jerusalem, Zion into your favorite Bible software, you'll find this equation. Israel plus Jerusalem plus Zion equals 3,390 occurrences. Depending on the size print of the Bible, and I have to admit that the print of my Bible has increased over the years. Uh, that's three times on every page on average. Now, again, this is not a small issue. It's not peripheral. It's not something that's passed away. It's central to the biblical narrative 
from Genesis to Revelation. And when, I, when we use the word Israel or when Israel or Jerusalem or Zion is used in the text, it means two things. It means the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who became known as the people of Israel and are most commonly called the Jewish people today. And it also means a specific land promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their descendants where Jesus and his disciples lived and walked and ministered. So Israel is a people and Israel is a place. And it's central from cover to cover in the narrative of the Bible. You know, when we talk about Israel, I, I think it's always important to say a word to my Arab cousins, my Palestinian cousins in particular. Our God, the God of our grandfather Abraham, has a great destiny for our family. And the distinct blessings to both sides of the family are a matter of biblical record. Our cousin Yeshua, the grandson of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, born in the city of Bethlehem and raised in the city of Nazareth, is central to our shared inheritance. Again, to my Arab cousins, to my friends who live in Israel. May each of us and all of us find true peace in Jesus the Messiah. Amen. So we're going to look at a lot of scriptures today. And as we do, I'd just like to start by reminding you of this. Will you, will you let this speak to your heart, not just to your brain? You know, it's part of our, disciple, our discipline as disciples of Jesus to study the text. We need to know what this book says, like in our brains, informationally. But it's by the insight of the Holy Spirit that as we read, we can come to a fullness of understanding of what this thing has to do with us. Will you join me in a word of prayer to start? Avinu Shabbat Shemayim, our Father in heaven. May you who sent Yeshua, the God of Israel made flesh, may you make your word come alive this morning, today, by your spirit as we read it and seek to understand it. Lord, we ask that you would activate in us a love for Israel and the Jewish people today as we study. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So the first reason that loving Israel and the Jewish people matters is this. It's a matter of the Lord's heart. The Lord himself has a heart for the people of Israel in the land of Israel. And he says it over and over in the text. In this point, I want to read some, some texts that are the authors capturing what the Lord said with his own mouth. So if the publishers were consistent from cover to cover, this would also be in red letters. The first two are from the Torah, from the books of Moses, and specifically Exodus. I'm going to start in Exodus 4, and then we'll turn it over to Exodus 19. Exodus 4, verse 22 and 23 say this. Then you, that is Moses, you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. Of all the sons of Adam and all the sons of Noah and of the eight sons of Abraham, in the eyes of the Lord, Israel is his firstborn son. Picture that in red letters. He's saying, hey, you are my firstborn. And like many of us, the Lord wants his firstborn to serve him, to serve in the family business of reconciliation. So those of us with children, you know, there's something unique about our firstborn child, whether it's a son or a daughter. 
They, they were the first one. They were the sole objects of our affection until a sibling came along. They were the first one that we felt parental pride for, or maybe parental disappointment in. It's not that it's more or better, it's just unique. That's how the Lord feels about the people of Israel. Let's look at Exodus 19. This is another one from the redemption story of Israel from slavery in Egypt. It says this in verse 5. This again, picture red letters. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you, Israel, shall be a special treasure to me above all people. For the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Notice there are some conditions here. If you will obey and keep. We know through the record of scripture that Israel's hearing and Israel's obedience waxes and wanes along the way, but there's always a remnant that does what the Lord says. And he says, if those things would be true, then you will be to me a segula, a special treasure is the way the New King James translates it. A peculiar treasure is the way that the King James translates it. I think we could just say unique. You will be unique from among all the people. And then the Lord makes this statement of sovereignty. He says, for all the earth is mine. Why, Israel? Because God said so. He decided to choose, and he did, and because the whole earth belongs to him, he can. Now, he continues. He says, I'm not just making you a special treasure. I'm making you a kingdom of priests, mamlechet kohanim. It's a kingdom. It, It rules. It's governmental on the earth, and it's for priesthood. It's so that you can close the gap between sinful man and me, the God of Israel. I want you to serve me in closing that gap. I want you to be in the family business of reconciliation with me. Then he says, Goy Kadosh, you're a, a holy nation, a nation set apart for this specific priestly purpose as a pattern to all the other nations that the Lord intends to draw to himself. So maybe I can say it this way. From the beginning of Israel's constitution as a nation, we see something of the Lord's plan of redemption here, and that is this. When the Lord was sanctifying Israel, He had the salvation of all the nations of the whole world in mind. You see, Israel's priesthood is not just unto itself. It's so that the God of Israel would be made known to a whole creation that was impacted by the effects of sin. And you know, Moses isn't the only one who recorded the words of the Lord about the people of Israel or the Lord's feelings towards the people of Israel in the Hebrew scriptures, many of the prophets did. And I just want to share these words from Jeremiah. Now, a little context around Jeremiah. Jeremiah's ministry was the weeping prophet. He was the prophet who went around weeping because he saw a judgment coming because the people of Israel were not obeying the voice of the Lord or keeping his commands. Maybe an equivalent is the guys with the sandwich boards that stand out in the, in the corner of major cities today and say, the end is near. I'm not sure I want that ministry, and I pray for people with sandwich boards all the time. That being said, Jeremiah 31, this is the chapter where the Lord introduces a new covenant that's coming later. Jeremiah says this concerning seeing a judgment coming. The Lord has appeared of old to me. The one who appeared before appeared to me, and he said this concerning Israel. Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. 
Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. Again, I will build you and you shall be rebuilt, O virgin of Israel. Again, let me remind you, these would be red letters. These are words in the mouth of the Lord, the God of Israel himself. And he's saying, hey, there's judgment coming, but my love for you, Israel, it's everlasting. Olam is the word there in Hebrew. As long as the universe exists, Israel, I'm going to have love for you. And my love, though I have to have boundaries around the passions of my love, thus there's judgment coming. It's not to repel you, it's to draw you near. And though there will be destruction, it won't be for forever. I'm going to rebuild you again, Israel. And you know that rebuilding took 70 years. I love to think about God's timelines. God's not limited by the lifetime of our understanding. God will do things over two generations. Imagine being the generation in the middle that didn't see the promise come to pass. Probably was a little uncomfortable for them. One more. This is from the hand of Luke by the mouth of Jesus, the God of Israel made into a man who took on flesh. So these are actually in red letters, if you have a red letter Bible. This is from Luke 19, verses 41 and 42. Luke says that as he, Jesus, drew near, he saw the city, that is the city of Jerusalem, and wept over it. And then Jesus said, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Jesus is, is, is walking in and he sees the city. I don't know if any of you have been to Jerusalem. But it's pretty impressive when you come into the city, there it is, the Temple Mount. And, and I can only picture the temple because it hasn't been there in so long. But there, it's beautiful. The Al-Aqsa Mosque is there. It's incredible to behold. But I don't think Jesus is moved by the infrastructure of the city. I think Jesus is moved by the people that live there and the promises that he made concerning all the prayers that have been prayed at the temple over the years, all the prophecies and the prophets that he sent there. And what's his response? He weeps. It's emotional, it's personal, it's deep. And his cry for them, though there's judgment coming, is that they would know peace. I think he reads the headlines concerning Jerusalem today, and he goes, oh, Israelis, oh, Palestinians, if only you would know what would make for your peace. I'm here. I'm available. Just cry out to me. Can you feel the depths of his heart concerning that, both from the text and maybe in our imagination what I was saying about the present day? So why does loving Israel and the Jewish people matter? Point number one, because it matters to the Lord's heart. But why else does it matter? Point number two, it's a matter of his servant's heart. Now, these passages are not the authors quoting the Lord. These are the authors sharing their own feelings or capturing the heart of those that they are writing about as they're speaking. There are many to choose from in the Hebrew scriptures, but I'm just going to share one from Isaiah. This is from Isaiah 22. Isaiah 22 is what Isaiah titles the, the valley of vision because he's seeing Jerusalem, he's seeing impending judgment, a little different timeline, a, a couple hundred years before Jeremiah likely, depends on how you do some of the, the aging of the text, but, but he sees Jerusalem and he sees a destruction coming. And he says this in verse four, telling the story. When I saw this, I said, look away from me. I will weep bitterly. Do not labor to comfort me because of the plundering of the daughter of my people. Isaiah says, hey, don't look at me. I'm embarrassed by my appearance because I've been crying so much 
Anybody ever felt that way? Maybe after a breakup or something like that? Like, don't look at me. I'm so embarrassed by how uncontrollably I'm weeping and how bitterly I feel. It's great pain that Isaiah is experiencing, similar to maybe what we saw in Yeshua in Luke 19. And he says, don't even work to comfort me. Don't even try. I won't be comforted. I'm inconsolable. Why? Because of the judgment of my people. The war that's coming as judgment, which will cause plunder and all that that means in a wartime context. Jeremiah records a similar experience. I won't record it, uh, read it for you, but I'll just tell you about it. In Jeremiah 4, verse 19, he says, I, I, I'm crying from the depths of my soul, from my very guts. There's pain in my heart, and there are noises inside of my heart that I'm not sure how to put to words. It's deep distress that Jeremiah is experiencing because of the sound of judgment and war, which is right around the corner for his people and his land. I had a question for you. Do you care about Jerusalem the way that Jesus and Jeremiah and Isaiah did? Should we? I think we should because it matters to the Lord and because it matters to his servants. And it's not only feelings of distress. I got one more feeling of distress, but I want to put something happy in the middle of it as well. This, this is from Luke chapter 1. This is Luke describing how Mary responds, finding out what God's going to do in her life. So Miriam, the teen mother of Jesus, who's not fully wed, who finds out that she's going to give birth to the son of God, the son of David, God incarnate in the flesh, while she's visiting her cousin Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist. She says this, in verse 46, she, she, she figures out what God's saying and she says, my soul magnifies the Lord. Uh, another way we can say that is, oh soul, make the Lord bigger in my life because of what he's doing in me. Verse 49, for he who is mighty has done great things for me. Let me just say, he who is mighty. What is she referring to there? She's referring to all the mighty acts that he's done as recorded in the rest of the scripture that she grew up hearing about in synagogue, that she grew up hearing about in the celebration of the Passover Seder. He who has done mighty things, he's doing great things for me. And holy is his name. Verse 50, and his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. As he has done for everyone who's feared him before me, so he's also doing in my life. See, Mary sees herself. Miriam, the mother of Jesus, sees herself connected to all the promises that have gone before. Verse 54, for surely, well, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. He helps Israel so that Israel can complete her service to the Lord in what's happening in Mary's life. And his mercy and his grace are in his mind. He's calling those things to his remembrance as he's doing it. Lastly, verse 55, as he spoke to our forefathers, to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. See, Mary sees herself as connected to the forever of God's promises to Israel. She sees herself, what's happening in her own life personally, as connected to that. And her response is to praise. When things, good things are happening in our lives, do we see that as connected to the whole narrative of Scripture? I want to encourage you. 
God's not just doing it for our own personal sake. He's doing it for the sake of the dream in his heart to restore all of creation and all of mankind to their fullness and to their glory. Amen. Now, let me give you one more grief one, okay, or one more one that hurts. And this is from the New Covenant, the New Testament scriptures. This is Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. Do you all know what Gentiles mean? It just means it's someone who's not Jewish. So Paul, who studied at the feet of Gamaliel, Rabbi Gamaliel in Jewish, uh, in Jewish tradition and Jewish study, Gamaliel's up there. Like he's the man in terms of Jewish understanding as a sage among Israel. Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, studied at his feet. It's incredible to think about the most learned among the Jewish people who were disciples ended up going to the non-Jewish people. God has a sense of irony. I was actually trained as an engineer and now I'm a preacher. And I wish he would have told me to be a preacher before I paid for engineering school. I just want you to know. But Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, this is how he describes his heart for Israel in Romans chapter 9. Let's listen in on Paul writing to the church in Rome. He says in verse one, I tell the truth in Christ, I'm not lying, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. I just wanna pause for a minute on verse one. Paul is making a threefold vow. Let me say it this way, Paul's swearing. What is he swearing by? Like, isn't Paul breaking Jesus saying, let your yes be yes and your no be no? He is actually. He's saying, I swear by Christ, I swear by my own conscience, and I swear by the Holy Spirit. What is he swearing about? Verse 2, that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. Concerning what? Verse 3, he he, not just doesn't have grief anymore. He doubles down. He says, for I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, first part of verse 4, who are Israelites. Paul's not just talking about his own grief, which is deep. I mean, he swears by it. He's also saying, I I wouldn't just trade my life. I would have trade my eternal life. For who? Like, is there any doubt here who he's talking about? My brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites. Like Paul, the depth of Paul's concern over this issue is pretty great, don't you think? And then he gets on this roll talking about what's at stake with the Israelites not saying yes, his countrymen according to his flesh, his brethren not saying yes to Yeshua, to Jesus. What's at stake? Hey, to them pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, the promises of whom are the fathers and from whom according to the flesh Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God, amen. Paul gets so caught up, not just talking about his grief, but about what's at stake that he turns it into a prayer. He turns it into a prophecy or a proclamation. Jesus, the eternally blessed God, amen. They're going to receive him one day. And Paul's willing to trade his eternal life for it. Paul's the apostle to the Gentiles, to to those who are not Jewish, and this is his heart. Oh, that we would have a heart like the apostle Paul. Let me summarize this point. The servants of the Lord, 
the prophets and apostles among them, saw themselves within the promises and history of the Jewish people in the land of Israel, and they cared for them. They loved them deeply. Well, of course they did, Troy. They were Jews. Of course they loved their own people. I'm from this ethnic group. I'm Italian. I'm Romanian. I'm Ukrainian. I love my people too. Yes, but it's more than just loving their own people. They saw themselves as connected to the history of Israel. They saw their, what was God was doing in their own lives connected to the biblical record and part of the Lord's promises to Israel coming full. So again, why does loving Israel and the Jewish people matter? Point number two, because it matters to his servants' hearts. Now that brings me to point number three, which is actually just a more specific question of the title question or a specific way to ask the question. And it's this, but why does Israel, loving Israel and the Jewish people matter to me today? I just want to give you freedom to ask that question. There's no shame in that question. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a messianic rabbi, like, yep, this is what I do. But I just want to give you freedom to ask this question and to allow not just me to answer it, but the Lord to answer it. And I've got three short answers, short in my opinion. Let's see what you say. And the first one is this. Why does loving Israel and the Jewish people matter to each of us, to all of us today? Because we should have hearts like the Lord himself and his servants as recorded in scripture. Like this one sort of speaks for itself, right? But, but I want you to know, I wanna love who and what the Lord loves, which is everyone, of course. And everyone includes his firstborn son, the people of Israel. And I wanna love what the forefathers and the matriarchs and the prophets and the apostles, all the heroes of the faith, I wanna love what they love. Like I, I long to be in the Hebrews 11 list uh, of, of, of uh, the, the hall of fame of faith. I'd love to be there, wouldn't you? All of them saw themselves and loved and cared about this issue. They were not absent from it or departed from it. You know, it's funny to get on the Hebrews 11 hall of fame of faith. You have to die not having received the promise. <laughs> That's not my favorite part of being on that list. I just want you to know. Now, now, I'm saying that about me, but don't you want to love what he loves? Like, it's, it's pretty simple in that way. Well, how about another answer? Troy, you're a little bit too much in my business on that one. Can you give me a different answer? Okay, I'll give you a different answer. Answer number two, because context matters. Because context matters. Let me make a statement here, and then we'll unpack it together. That statement is this. Our personal salvation and personal destiny in Jesus is not independent of or separate from the Lord's love for and covenants with Israel and the Jewish people. Oh, Troy, that's a pretty long sentence. I'm not sure if I can agree with every phrase. That's okay. Parse it out with the Lord. He'll talk to you about it. He's talked to so many people about it. It's recorded right here in this book. Now, I've got a harsh illustration. I hope you can hear my heart, I'm, I'm being extreme to make a point here, but the Gentile Christian church, that is those around the world that call on the name of Jesus who are primarily not from a Jewish background. The Gentile Christian church cannot be a second wife to the Lord after he divorced his first wife, Israel. That's not a possibility. 
And you might say, well, try, I don't believe that. Oh, great, that's awesome. But you know, much of Christian theology implies just that because historically for the last, I don't know, 15, 1600 years, it's been entirely divorced from the narrative of the people of Israel. Troy, can you give me an example of that? Sure. Replacement theology, ever heard of it? The formal word is supersessionism. This idea that Israel has been replaced by the church. So when we read the scripture, all the things promised to Israel really means the Christian church and, and Israel's been cut off because of their unbelief. Well, there's always a remnant that believes. What about Paul and the apostles? Like you see, they walked in the promises in Jesus. And that's why we're all sitting in this room today on Sunday morning at Gateway Church in Scottsdale. It's because of the faithfulness of the remnant that's believed throughout the ages. The remnant elected according to grace from among the people of Israel. So maybe let me just say that a different way. The salvation of every nation depends on the Lord's faithfulness to Israel and the Jewish people despite their seasons of unfaithfulness. If the Lord can break covenant with Israel, he can break covenant with us. You see, we can trust him to be faithful in our seasons of unfaithfulness because he's been faithful to Israel even when they turned away from him. And you know what? There are many in the Christian church that are really coming to understand this. And I'm so grateful for that. Pastor Robert Morris is among them. I'm blessed the Lord for Pastor Robert. Bless the Lord for our own pastor, Pastor Preston Morrison here and the elders. And you know what? They're not alone. In the last hundred years, the, there's been a seismic shift in Christian theology concerning Israel and the Jewish people. It's incredible. Denominations and scholars have made their careers around a reformatting of this issue. And my response to that is praise the Lord. You know, I've gotten to know uh, Uh, Pastor Tim Ross, he's spoken here a few times uh, over the years uh, in the last year. And, and we were at dinner, I think it was in the spring, maybe it was in the summer when he was in town. And uh, he was just telling his testimony. And he was sitting there with me and two of uh, the people that I work with, all three of us Messianic rabbis. And he said, you know, guys, the interesting thing is when the first time that I read the Bible for myself... I realized that this was not the story of my people. Now, Tim's an African-American. He said, I realized that this was the story of another people, another ethnic people, and that in Jesus, I was being added to the story. I loved the way that Tim said that. And, and I just want to say to you this morning, as Tim said about himself, so also is true for you. In Jesus, you have been added to the story of Israel. The king of the Jews made a way for all the world to say yes to the God of Israel. It's incredible. And you didn't replace Israel in that story. You just got added to it. Isn't that an amazing thing? And when we read the Bible, we have to keep in mind the context of the Bible itself. Let me make this statement. The immediate context of almost every book of the Bible is something happening at a specific time related to the Jewish people in the land of Israel, even if written to a primarily Gentile audience. Isaiah makes prophecies concerning Egypt, Ethiopia, Babylon, 
Lebanon. Like he's got a lot of prophecies directed to nations. But even though that's the audience, his frame of reference is always the Jewish people and God's work among the Jewish people as it relates to those nations. Paul, author of, I don't know, by volume, about 40, 50% of the New Covenant text, he's writing primarily to a group of Gentile believers in different cities around the Mediterranean. And, and his messaging to the Gentiles often has little tidbits and stories of the history of the people of Israel because the, the soil of the good news is the record of scripture concerning God's faithfulness to Israel. That's not a past tense statement. Today, what God's doing in our lives is part of bringing to bear the fullness of his promises to Israel that would affect the whole world. We get to be a part of that. You've been brought near to the story of Israel in Jesus. The story of Israel and the story of the nations, of God's work among the nations, both require Jesus, but they're not independent of each other. Only together do they make the whole story. Amen, amen. I'm gonna dance myself. All right, answer number three. This one's a little bit uh, aggressive of me to try to answer in five minutes or less. But I want to whet your appetite. I want to whet the appetite of some of you to go and study this, to have your whole biblical worldview rearranged according to this paradigm that I'm sharing with you this morning. And that's this, answer number three, why does loving Israel and the Jewish people matter to me today? Because what is at stake? Because of what is at stake. And we're going to Read from Romans 11, 25 and 26. I promised you we would get there, and I told you it took a long time to get there. I think I delivered on both of those promises. <laughs> Verse 25, and I'm reading from the ESV here. Paul's saying this again to the, to the church at Rome, a little small group of believers that didn't yet become the institution that we know as the Roman church today. He says this, lest you be wise in your own sight. Other translations say wise in your own opinion. Other translations say haughty. I do not want you to become un to be unaware of this mystery, brothers, colon. He's about to tell us what the mystery is. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Verse 26, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. Let's uh, talk about what this means a little bit. The audience is the church in Rome. The message is don't be proud towards the Jewish people because right now they have a partial blindness. Can you imagine if the church in Rome would have taken the advice of Paul, how different Christian history would be towards the Jewish people? Oh man, that is strong, huh? He says, don't be haughty. Don't be wise in your own opinion, in your own eyes. Don't be proud towards the Jewish people because they have a hardness concerning Israel, or concerning Jesus as the Messiah. And, and, and the, why is Paul addressing this? Because if the Gentiles who've said yes to Jesus see the Jewish people who he came and ministered among exclusively saying no to him, it would give the opportunity for the Gentiles, those from the nations, to become proud towards the people of Israel. But Paul reminds them of two things. One, it's a mystery. 
Guys, you can't understand this with your logical mind. It doesn't add up logically, but by the Holy Spirit, you can get this thing that I'm talking about way down deep in here from the heart of God. Mystery doesn't mean it's unknowable. It means it's unknowable absent the insight of God's spirit. And then he says this, it's partial. He says, guys, it's not total. It's not complete. It's partial. I'm the evidence of it. I'll say, I bring my wife up here. Don't come up here. But I bring my wife up here and say, we are evidence of this. We are evidence of the fact that the, heart, the blindness of Israel concerning Jesus is partial. And you know what? There's about 100,000 of us around the world today, yay, a million maybe, who have a Jewish parent or grandparent that believe in Jesus. The hardness is partial. Why? Because the fullness of the Gentiles will come to pass. <laughs> what does fullness mean? Pleroma is the Greek word. It doesn't primarily mean number. And the NIV translates that until the full number of the Gentiles comes in. I'm a guy with an engineering degree, and I disagree with all the translators in the NIV. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Pleroma is a statement not of number. It's a statement of condition. What is fullness? It means filled full. It means the full complement of. It means the abundance of the Gentiles. In what? In identity, in purpose, and in relationship to the people of Israel. You know, fullness, Colossians 2 verse 9, and in him, that is Jesus, the fullness of the Godhead dwelled bodily. It's not talking about the full number of the Godhead there. It's talking about Jesus had, in a human body, had a perfect relationship with the fullness of the Godhead. That's what Paul sees for the Gentiles concerning Israel. What happens when that comes to pass? The partial blindness ends, and in this way, all of Israel will be saved. All. Does all mean every single one? I have no idea. People who are way smarter than me debate those kinds of things. But I do know that in Greek, pas is what's translated as all. And pas is not a numerical description primarily. Pas is a description of condition. The whole of Israel will be saved. Every part of Israel. Does that mean every, uh, a portion of every tribe that God somehow keeps track of because we lost all the genealogical records comes to faith in him? May it be so. Majority of the people of Israel, yes, at least 144,000 men. What else? Maybe the remnant uh, of Jewish people scattered around the world, there'll be a, at least a, a majority of them that come to faith. May it be so. But that's not all. It's not just that the fullness of the Gentiles ends the partial hardening of Israel so that the wholeness of Israel's salvation comes to pass. Paul quotes from Isaiah and says, when those things happen, the deliverer will come from Zion and remove ungodliness from Jacob. You see, the, the place and the people are still on the radar for the Lord as Paul's painting this incredibly large picture. Hey guys, what's at stake here is the end of the partial hardening of Israel concerning Jesus as the Gentiles come to their pleroma, to their fullness of condition and of understanding, and they come into the right relationship with Israel and the Jewish people. And guess what? That yields the salvation of all of Israel, the wholeness of Israel, Israel's entire salvation. What does that lead to? That leads to Jesus coming back. How many of y'all want Jesus to come back? <laughs> I'm going to pray for the other 300 of you that didn't say anything. 
Do you see what's at stake here? Well, no, Troy, I don't. Actually, it's too confusing. You said too many big words. I'm not sure. Okay, can I? I, I started with an equation. It's my engineering coming out. This is $75,000 right here. So you know. <laughs> Ready? The wholeness of the Gentiles plus the wholeness of Israel's salvation equals the hope of the coming deliverer. That's what's at stake here. You see, our love for Israel and the Jewish people is part of the wholeness of the Gentiles. And the wholeness of the Gentiles brings to an end the partial hardening of Israel concerning Jesus. And it gives us the opportunity to see on the earth the wholeness of Israel's salvation. And when that moment comes, the leaders in Jerusalem say, Baruch haba b'shem Adonai, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus' feet touched Mount Zion. And he begins the process of putting all things under his feet, ruling and reigning and extending his kingdom from Jerusalem to all of Israel, yea, to all the nations. I want to ask you to stand with me as I pray. Lord, we simply say this, may it be so. Lord, do this in our hearts in this day, at this time, in 2022. Lord, we want to love who and what you love. Lord, we want to have your heart. We want to have the heart of your servants recorded in scripture. Lord, we want you to put our relationship with Israel in the right place. Lord, we want to see the wholeness of the Gentiles. I just want to say, Lord, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a messianic rabbi. I want to see the fullness of the Gentiles. Lord, may each of us and all of us, no matter what nation we come, to, come from, Lord, may we agree together to see the wholeness of Israel's salvation in, the, in our lifetime and in our days. And Lord, we ask that you would come and make yourself known as the hope of all nations, the desire of all nations. Lord, touch our hearts with the depth of your love for Israel and the Jewish people. Don't just touch us with it, Lord. I pray that it would be activated in us, that it would matter to each of us and to all of us in a more significant way this year. Lord, that it would be woven deeper into the fabric of our church family. Lord, that it would affect the way we pray for Israel, the Jewish people, and our Jewish families, friends, and neighbors. Lord, hope that's the result of wholeness, wholeness of Israel, wholeness of the nations. Lord, that's what we're longing for. And we ask that you would imprint this in our hearts, in our souls, in our minds, in the way we read the scripture in a new way this year. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Thanks for joining us today. For more information about Gateway Church, please visit us at gatewaylife.com. Have a great week.